Hi, I'm Alexandra Roxo, your host of the Holy Fuck Podcast. I've created this podcast because I want to explore how the mystical touches us in our everyday lives, how the sacred and the profane move together, like two sides of the same coin. I found that personally, the most magical view I can choose of life is when I find the divinity, the healing, and the transformation in all of life. In this podcast, you can expect to hear inspiring conversations and storytelling that touch the heart and awaken the soul. This is a place for the modern seeker, passionate human, and curious explorer. A place where we can redefine what is sacred and what is profane, and just have the courage to open to it all. A place where we can step out of the mainstream programming and choose what stories, beliefs, and rituals we hold sacred and true. On this podcast, you're going to hear from people on all sorts of walks of life, sharing what they're passionate about, what keeps them awake at night, what they consider to be sacred, what they consider to be profane, how they have explored life and freed their hearts and souls through love and spiritual practice, art, meditation, sex, drugs, birthing, prayer, just experiencing life in all of its wild tragedies and comedies. Plus, ideas, explorations, advice, and truths from me on sex, relationships, spirituality, and what it means to be a human on this planet at this time. If you found that you're also a rebel mystic who doesn't fit into the flattened ideas of good and bad and spirituality, but sees the nuance that life has to offer us, then I hope you find a home with me here in this podcast. Enjoy. On today's episode of Holy Fuck, I have one of my best friends, Ruby Warrington. She is, uh, I don't know, she's written like four books, as I was say, a three-time author, four-time author. I don't even know. I can't keep up at this point. In this episode, she talks about her new book, which is kind of top secret information in a way, but she shared it with us, which is super exciting. And in this episode, of course, as a conversation between two friends goes, we get really intimate, really close, really honest. Um, I love speaking with my friends on this podcast and inviting you into our questions, our lines of inquiry, our conversations together. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast between me and Miss Ruby Warrington. Hi, everybody. I am here with my dear friend, Ruby Warrington, and we were just having like some pre-record chit chat. And I was like, wait, we have to stop. We have to record this now because this is, I imagine what people would want to hear because it's two people, two writers, creators, um, you know, maybe you could call us entrepreneurs, uh, self-starters, artists, whatever you want to say, two people out in the world year after year, putting our voices, projects, and ideas out in the world and sharing to each other how frightening, how intimidating, how um, embarrassing it can be that actually like we've grown so much since our original projects, books, um, ideas, and and, and when we want to leap into new realms of self-expression as writers, we we're talking about specifically, but this can be applied really to anyone that we often feel, and I'll let you talk about this a little bit on your own, but like, we often feel like, oh my God, I, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I'm terrible at this. So I just want to start there right in the heart of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> 
So tell us what you're working on right now and what feelings it's bringing up for you as a writer. And, um, you know, this is like your third book. You've been uh, writing publicly for what, 15, I don't know how many years. I've been writing publicly. I had my first magazine article published in 1998. Oh my God. So wait, what's that? Like 2008, 2018. That's 23 years ago. I had my first article published in the Face magazine in the UK, and it was about people making DIY opium. Oh, my God. I mean, it was they called it poppy love. Oh, my God. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been writing publicly for all of that time. And obviously over that period, particularly while I was working in magazines and newspapers, I developed a very – I felt I had a very unique style, and that's kind of why I was able to be quite successful in that field, but I also developed, it was became very specific, this and very comfortable and easy for me to write in this kind of voice, which was, and I think the reason it felt unique at the time is because it was quite bloggy. Like it was quite conversational. I kind of like right. write like I like wrote like I spoke. And at the time that felt fresh and new and exciting. And it sort of became my writing voice. And my first book, particularly Material Girl Mystical World, is very much written in that voice. And yeah, we kind of like, well, I was jumping into this discussion with you by sharing that, you know, I wrote that book, Material Girl in the School World, which came out 2017. I started writing it in 2015, so six years ago now. And I'm kind of like, and I almost don't want to say this because I know so many people, potentially people who are listening, have really loved that book and found so much value in that book. But now I'm almost like cringe anytime (laughs) I know anyone's reading it because it sounds so kind of, kind of, Young is the wrong word, but just kind of like chit-chatty and gossipy. It's very much in that kind of magazine bloggy tone. Yeah. Which I just feel like I, along with the world around us, have matured so much in terms of what kind of content I actually feel has nutritional value. I've been writing about this in my new book. Like I've become really concerned with the nutritional value and integrity of all of the content that I put out in the world. Yeah. And so what I'm writing now is so much, has so much, so many more layers of depth. And in a way it's much more serious sounding, Mm -hmm. but I think that's just kind of a reflection of myself, the ways that I've grown over the past five, six years and the way that the world has kind of like evolved so rapidly in terms of just our awareness about what's going on in the world and what's actually needed in the world over that same time period. So, yeah, but I think I've heard other writers talk about this and, and in a way it's such a, it sort of shows to me that Material Girl Mystical World like did its job. Because <laughs> that to me was at the, not the beginning, but it certainly came when I was kind of like really kind of like in the first thrust, I suppose, or the first flourishing of my kind of spiritual development and, you know, removing alcohol and getting and engaging with all of these different practices of sort of personal growth and healing, really. Yeah. And actually it's a result of, engaging in everything that I wrote about in Material Girl West Mystical World that have kind of brought me to this place of, I mean, I think I just said to you, I feel like I've actually aged a hundred years <laughs> in that six year time period, just in terms of my maturity and like the impact I want to be able to have in the world with my work, you know, and the, the, mm-hmm. the level of seriousness with which mm-hmm. I take my work and my responsibility as a creator and a writer. Yeah. Um, so much as that of that has come out of just really, understanding myself and what I have to say and why I have to say it a much, much, much deeper level. So yeah, the new project, (laughs) I haven't really been speaking about it publicly, 
but it's um, called Women Without Kids. And it began as a sort of investigation into my own, the fact that I never, I always knew I didn't want to have kids. And I always felt that that marked me out as kind of different or strange, or that maybe there was even something wrong with me for the fact that I never had any kind of a maternal instinct. I was like, does this make me an uncaring person? Am I just kind of like messed up? Like, did I miss something about what it means to be a woman? Um, so it began with an investigation into like, why I never wanted to have kids and also with my attempting to make peace with that you know Mm. but as I began my research (laughs) you know I kind of realized that actually we're at this moment this juncture I think for womankind where the birth rate has just been dropping 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 steadily rapidly over the past 100 years and I am by no means the only one so many Mm. of us now are women without kids And the more I've researched it, like the reasons for this are deep and dark and tragic Mm. in many ways. And so, yeah, it's bringing up Mm. tons for me personally, but more, more importantly, just so much about how we've reached this juncture as a womankind, you know, and what our path forward can be as women without kids. So, Mm. yeah, it's really like Mm. it's deep Mm. (laughs) and it's requiring like I'm really wanting it to I'm wanting the writing and the voice to reflect the depth of the subject matter. And that's the challenge. Cause mm-hmm. I'm like, I know my previous writing voice is so easy for me. I can just slip into it almost without thinking. And it just kind yeah. of flows out onto the page, but no, this, this subject requires and um, deserves a much kind of deeper crafting of the mm-hmm. language yeah. to really carry the weight of it. And so that's what I'm currently engaged in. And it's so, it's challenging as fuck. Wow. <laughs> it's like an evolution of a writer who you, you learn just like anything, just like any persona that we embody, you learn to be really good at it. And you're like, wow, this persona is really marketable. She makes me good money. She's super, you know, likable at a party or whatever the traits are for your particular favorite kind of voice, internal voice that then manifests externally. And then we decide to change or we decide to explore a new realm of our own being, a new realm of our soul and call that forth down through our hands, through our mouth, through our um, loving, feeling, creating, expressing. And that a lot of people, I believe, don't ever take the journey from one part of themselves that they learn to embody and express. Um, they, they To leave that one part and to go, hey, I love you, you're wonderful, and now I'm going to go explore over here, or I'm going to deepen you, or whatever. It requires... Um, like it can require like a killing or um, a sort of like a transmute transfiguration of that old voice. And it's, and it's when we know that it's like right there, it's like, I could, like you said, I could go back to that thing that I know how to do well, but instead I'm going to try to do this thing over here because that's where my heart is calling me. Like, that's so brave. I just want to say that first and foremost. (laughs) And it is challenging because, because the old way can feel it's almost unconscious. You can just so course, easily yeah. slip into this old way of being. You yeah. have to be super, super conscious. So how are to you kind of that? like keep yourself like to be to be carving this new groove takes real work, you know. So yeah, how am I doing it? Um, <laughs> this is the first book where I've actually given myself writers' retreats. So mm-hmm. one 
week out of every month or five days out of every month I've been going up to a friend's place in the woods and um yeah turning off my phone completely and just kind of like like completely removing myself from the outside world and really just giving myself the space to go really deep you know with it because I think that it's easy to rely on those kind of old easy ways of expressing ourselves when we've got tons of other distractions because actually it takes so much more energy and mental space Mm. to really be consciously with every sentence every word of every sentence you know and I feel like it's um yeah it's like it's it's interesting it's coincided in a time in my life and why this is coming up for me that I started using much heavier weights in the gym (laughs) and it's like it's hard but there's something so satisfying and gratifying about mm. really kind of like pushing myself creatively in this way. So, mm. I mean, I don't know, man, we'll see what the, we'll see what the results are. <laughs> um, are there any particular writers or, or people or role models or mentors or sort of like internal touchstones that you're looking to as you deepen and expand your your um, potency as a writer and an author? Um, Well, I hired my old editor um, who worked as my editor on my first two books when she was in-house at my publisher. She's since left to go freelance. And so I knew that I wanted additional support while I was writing. So I hired her to kind of like really be my my guiding compass um, throughout the writing of this manuscript. And this is how I work with people on their manuscripts and it's the first time I mean I kind of got her in-house as part of the package with my first two books and I didn't realize how rare it is to have an editor at a publishing house who actually has the time and commitment to really kind of like hold your hand and give you proper developmental edits through the manuscript process so I've hired her which is amazing um but also I suppose I don't like I don't write I don't really read self-help and I don't read a lot of non-fiction Mm-hmm. partly because I've just always loved to kind of like find my own answers. I don't do well. I don't take well to kind of like receiving advice from people I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, if I'm receiving your advice, it's because I know you personally and I see how you live your life. And so I know I can trust that I want you to tell me like I value your advice. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Self-help was always kind of like glanced off me a bit so the writers I really aspire to and admire are memoirists and fiction writers who can Mm. just conjure and this is what I'm trying to do and it's so hard it's a real skill writers who can really conjure a a feeling an emotion with their words you know where there's information being imparted but the information is equally kind of like soulful as it is intellectual it's Mm -hmm. equally a felt sense of what's being expressed as it is an intellectual understanding of what's being expressed. So writers that I admire, one actually I met in person this weekend, we connected online and I got a chance to meet her. Her name's Nina Renata Aaron. Mm. And she wrote an incredible book about codependency, which I mean, it's it's got a lot of information about codependency, but she wrote it as a memoir. And oh, so it's her story. And yet through reading her story, I came to understand so much about this subject matter. Mm. So it was kind of, it's a really beautiful blend, I suppose, of storytelling with a lot of kind of information and useful advice, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's one that's kind of like comes to mind, but there are, yeah, it's fiction writers whose work I really love most. I love that about you, that, you know, that you read a lot of fiction. And 
I'm curious with your book, is it going to be like a nonfiction memoir kind of blend? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> that to so me with is all, like, With yeah. all of my books, I mean, I can't, the thing is I have this journalistic skill for research. Yeah. Which is very, I have this real kind of magpie mind. Like I yeah. read tons uh, from many, many different sources and I listen to tons of podcasts. And so it's full of little snippets that I can sort of knit together and blend together to create, not create arguments, but to present or to kind of, I, I described it to my husband recently. I was like, one of my skills is I'm a dot joiner, right? Mm. I can look at out of the broader culture and I can say, see this here and this here, mm. combine these two things and you get something like this. And this mm. explains this, like, I'm really good at that. And I don't want to, I think there's a lot of value in that. So I, there's lots of that, but then it's very much interwoven with storytelling, but more so the kind of storytelling where I'm describing vividly with lots of sensual detail, scenes from my life, conversations mm. I've had, experiences I've had versus the kind of, well, when I was 23, this happened to me and this shows this. It's more like I'm 23. I'm sat in the bathroom at my father's house. There are two blue lines on the pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. I know I'm not going to keep it, but I can't keep the smile off my face. Like it's kind of like in the moment, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like deeper storytelling to, yeah, to, to, to sort of trigger um, empathy to, I sort of feel like in those, when you deeply connect with somebody's story in a real felt sense, it becomes your story, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm trying to um, infuse the manuscript with that. And it's the question for me of getting the balance right, which is where having my editor's help is really useful yeah. because she can sort of say, you've gone too far here or you need a bit more storytelling here. Or because mm -hmm. when you're in the thick of when you're in the thick of the words, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to be able to get that level of perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that intimate storytelling that you just so beautifully described from your current book, that intimate storytelling. Do you feel that with the advent of social media and everything being really politicized and um, things being so fast and public and uh, just so many avenues for information, do you feel like that level of detailed storytelling can still be upheld or is being upheld by the writers and storytellers? Do you feel like it's becoming more rare? Like where, what do you think about that in today's times? I think we have more need for it than ever. I find myself craving it more than ever. We live in such an info heavy world. You know, as soon as we turn on, turn on our phones, every notification is more, a little another piece of information for us to kind of figure out or absorb intellectually. And I just find myself craving almost like I crave, you know, a delicious piece of cake, <laughs> mm -hmm. a really delicious and I use that word because it is like I want to know how that that smelt in that moment I want to know what that felt like on your skin I want to know like mm -hmm. what the embodied experience of that was and so I find myself craving it almost as mm -hmm. an antidote to the kind of online info heavy world that we all live you know yeah and it's for me I mean I loved reading stories from the age as soon as I could, as soon as I learned to read, like four or five years old, I always had my head in a book. And in a way, it was my first addiction. It was the first kind of like escapism that I found, you know, it was a way for me to dissociate from a lot of the chaos and a lot of the kind of anxiety that was in my home when I was growing up. 
And so stories have always been a place of refuge and comfort for me and escape. But for me, it's like a healthy escape. Obviously, throughout my life, I found other unhealthy ways to escape and dissociate. And I sort of feel like I've come back around to like stories and storytelling being a really healthy way to escape because you are connecting with the storyteller in that moment as well. You know, Mm -hmm. you're connecting to parts of yourself that you might have been hiding from that reading the story, you find them again. And it's I find it really therapeutic, actually. I do as well. And I mean, you re- you recommended this book called The Pisces to me. Which I still I- want to read it. I haven't read oh, it. Oh, you didn't read it. Oh, okay, <laughs> no, cool. I just it's a I- novel and I hadn't read a novel in a while. And I brought two books with me um, when I went away. I brought that book and Glennon Doyle's Untamed. And I really found refuge in both of them. Like I found parts of myself that I had um, forgotten about in both of them. I found an old version of me. Mm. And in some of them too, that I actually got to kind of feel and feel, feel my love for her, my forgiveness for her. And so that ability and to find refuge in writing, I mean, if you're a writer, you probably already do that. But if you're a reader, like, I love that you said that it's like a healthy escape because Mm. I, I, I love that escape. I mean, I, I think it's so healing and so wonderful to find that and I find home within myself by reading certain writers that I'm like oh my god thank god I'm not alone exactly and that's why I love fiction as well because the writer the author is through their fictional characters in a way able to go to spaces that are slightly more daring or risque or nuanced Mm. than if they were even telling their own story you know because fictional characters can say anything and we can't judge them because they're not real right (laughs) and so we get to really kind of like go to some taboo places reading fiction I feel Mm. like Mm -hmm. and I like the way you framed it as refuge because that could be you know a healthy or therapeutic escape could be is a is a refuge in one way of course it's deeply sad that we live in a world where we need to find refuge but I feel like that's um but is it? Yeah. Does it have to be? I don't know. I guess. Because it's like, what, the way that I look at it is like, we have an external world and an internal world. And so um, sometimes we just spend, I, in my opinion, too much time external. And I think that the, the a, a good book or a good film can draw you into the internal worlds where it's like, I just need a break from this external, mm. like solar consciousness as Marianne Woodman, one of my favorite um, Jungian analysts and writer and psych and therapist, like who's now passed, but she would say, you know, there's the solar consciousness and the lunar consciousness. And like for us to be able to turn towards those imaginal realms inside, not necessarily because, well, the external world is just so harsh that being a part of it, but also like, I also have this incredible inner life that's so rich and so abundant and so you know fecund it's like that I just like I can't not turn to it yeah no I think you're right and and what I was referencing a Pisces and an Aries to have a conversation (laughs) (laughs) and it's interesting my third house which is communication is mainly filled up with Pisces so definitely like Pisces representing where in our 
where where Pisces is in our birth charts represents where we can find this kind of escape that we're talking about, this therapeutic escape and imaginative escape. And it's my it's third house, which is communication. But, Mm. yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, even if we lived in an idyllic world where everything on the outside was perfect and nobody hurt and like everyone was kind of like loving towards each other and it was fully empathetic and allowed us to be the people that we are without judgment, we would still need time to go within and just be with ourselves mm-hmm. so yeah you're absolutely yeah. right <laughs> and I think not that I was trying to be right or anything but um I think that the 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 glory of myth and story and fairy tale is that we get to live out these different realities in our imaginal space and mm-hmm. how that can be like a deep exhale um for for the soul to to go okay like i may not do that ever and that may be like my shadow part that i actually am terrified of but i can i can experience that in story and in 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 this other realm of my imagination and um i think that we can learn a lot about where our culture is by what stories and myths and books are resonating most with the like mainstream culture. Like we get to see like, Ooh, people are dying to feel this or this or to explore this shadow. And it's always been something I've thought about, especially with horror films and in our mm. kind of Western American culture. I'm like, do other countries make as many horror movies as our country does? It's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I really just... noticed that last year, just so much horror, you know? And I think you're right. People are just needing an outlet to feel the horrors that we've been living through yeah 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 I I felt for a while I would keep looking on like Apple movies for new trailers and stuff and it would just be like horror thriller horror thriller and I'm like well people are yearning to like actually feel the depth of the terror that that's hiding they're terrified right of what's from the safety of their sofa kind of thing exactly and in a way kind of like those feelings let those feelings be there in the same way that roller coasters can be you know thrilling (laughs) so yeah it's so bizarre and you know neither neither one of us are um you know psychoanalysts or, or psychologists but we are cultural you know we're cultural commentators explorers and you know i to think you're a thought leader when it comes to this kind of thing so having conversations about why we all do the things we do and why our kind of collective consciousness is more directed in certain areas and then you creating a book like super curious you could actually um you know sort of steer the collective in a certain direction it's What's interesting. I see, it's funny. It's really funny you say steer. I um. So my my maiden name sounds so old fashioned, <laughs> as well, especially in the context a, of like women without maiden. kids. But women without kids, like maiden, maiden is the woman without kids, right? Right. Maiden, mother crone. Uh, my maiden name um, was Shepherd, mm. and actually, I think of it. I think of my kind of role as a kind of cultural commentator more as like a shepherd, right? Mm. To all you sheeple. No, no joke. But (laughs) it's more like what I was describing about the dot joining. It's kind of like, oh, look, here's all this movement in a certain direction. Is there a way that I can kind of like shape 
and sort of corral this conversation into a way that is is cohesive and that people can kind of like feel like they're a part of and connect with and move forward in, you know, that sort of more the role, though I am an Aries, so I have that kind of leadership thing, but um, I see it more as a shepherding I like that. kind of role in a way. Um, yeah, I like yeah. that. And I think there's an invitation there. So, you know, when you wrote Sober Curious, that ended up making it, you know, into the New York Times and making it into the hands of many people, many publications, supporting a lot of people who were maybe not wanting to go to like AA, but who were willing to question why they drink and um, what the sort of greater cultural context of alcohol is. But when you were creating that, it felt like an invitation, like you were inviting people into um, a line of inquiry that maybe would serve them, maybe not. But like that, that feels like the shepherd feels like you're inviting, mm-hmm. you know, you're creating mm-hmm. a space, come over here, you know, <laughs> come this way, which is really beautiful in today's world where a lot of people are so bossy with like, mm-hmm. you should do this, you should eat like this, dress like this, do the spiritual practice, you should conquer your mental health or whatever. It's like, it, it feels um, so, so much better to me to receive an invitation rather than be told what to do from yeah another book, another social media person, another coach or another teacher or whatever. It's like, I don't need to be told what to do, but if you leave me the door open and I see that you guys are having fun, then I may come over there. <laughs> right. I really feel that, yeah, that absolutely. In terms, I can't remember the exact quote, uh, but it was something about the difference between, you know, gurus and teacher. And it's like, and I can't remember who said it either. So I'm completely botching this. But anyway, <laughs> it was something like a guru says, here, I have the answers. A teacher says, here, let me show you how to find the answers. You know, and I definitely would see myself in the second category. I was describing because my editor not a guru. <laughs> definitely nobody's guru nobody's guru please let that be like on my tombstone nobody's guru but I said it to my editor and I think book book publishers tend to like that message hey read this it will give you all the answers oh, everything yeah. before you've been looking for is in these pages that's super seductive message but it's just not true it's just not and I actually don't think it's appropriate and so it's really been coming through for me with this book about women without kids. Cause I know that my publisher love you. If you're listening, <laughs> you know, they want a kind of a rallying cry, like a, this is what it means to be a woman without kids kind of thing. Right. And I've been really struggling mm. because I can't write that book and not struggling, but like, I've been really aware of the fact I can't write that book. And not only I can't write it, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to write that book. How dare I presume that I understand what each and every reader's experience of being a woman without kids is? Why? What brought her to this point? Like what kind of cultural situation she's been in? What kind of background she has? What kind of you know, ancestral lineage she has? It, it would not be appropriate for me to say, this is how you should feel. And this is how you should think with regards to this subject or any subject, actually. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. really... Um, if anything, it's about saying, let me illuminate the world that we're living in and the, the different elements of the world that we're living in that have kind of brought about this evolutionary shift 
mm. you know, so that mm-hmm. each reader can orient themselves based on their own understanding of their own lineage, their own path, their own healing, their own challenges, their own choices, um, their own, yeah, influences, mm-hmm. um, and sort of like find their own way with it. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. And I really do feel like this is, this is the future for kind of self-help in a way, you mm-hmm. know, is less of the guru kind of, yeah. here are all the answers and more of the way showing, let's say. I absolutely love that. Less of here's the way you absolutely got to come this way. I have the answer and more of the way showing like here's a way if it resonates with your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, or here are, the, here are the ways to look at things to find your own answers. Yeah. Here are some tools that not even tools. Everyone needs, everyone's got the tools as well. Right. It's like, I know. It's so annoying. Here are the raw materials for you to like build your own tools kind of Fuck thing. Tools. Fuck, Fuck tools. Fuck tools. We do. We give you some raw materials. <laughs> Here's some raw material. Go create. Ah. And this, you know, you've been very inspiring in this way. Just the way you talk about art is healing, I suppose. And like creativity is our, as a way of finding our own healing processes and yeah. seeing our lives as like art and, and yeah. the, the, the healing and the self-discovery that can happen when we really can find our creative potential in every moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's terrifying for a lot of people. So here's my next question is like, how does a person like you have the the wherewithal, the bravery, the audacity, the courage to go, I'm going to write a book because I have something to say. Wait, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. Um, it's kind of in my astrology. Okay. 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 I'm an Aries. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how astro literate people are. So I'm, there's actually nothing more boring than listening to someone sort of talk about their birth chart. If you don't really like know I them agree. or know astrology like. I see the but, look on my partner's face every time I do that. And it's just like <laughs> vacant. I'm speaking. So what a language. I will say is lots of it's in my birth chart, but then my understanding of astrology is like, well, our soul chooses this, this family, this location, this moment in history, this time to come through in this incarnation. That's what our astrological birth chart shows us, right? The path that our soul chose in this incarnation. So when I say lots of it's in my birth chart, well, that means lots of it's in my family upbringing. Lots of that's in my cultural influences. Lots of that's just like all of the different things that have shaped me and made me who I am. And I think partly I grew up in a home where both my parents were um, kind of the black sheep or like rebel rebels in their family, I suppose. And they both were in a way and it's, has its pluses and its minuses, but they were uber permissive. What I never heard growing up was we want you to do this or follow this path to be happy, or please make sure you do this in your life. All I ever heard was just, just do whatever you do, whatever you want, like be who you are, like be free, not, not be free, but just, um, and I was explaining to my therapist, I was like, on the one hand, it was really freeing and really kind of like supportive to be to feel like it was okay just to to be who I am and on the other sometimes it was so laissez-faire that it felt like they just she didn't give a shit Mm. (laughs) it was kind of like there was there was kind of no guidance so in a way I think that my whole life has felt like this sort of quest to kind of like find and express myself 
mm. you know, and I didn't really have any, any guidance around that, which meant I didn't really have any like barriers around that either. And so mm. I've always felt this sense of freedom when it comes to just kind of pursuing whatever it is that's like making me feel more alive or whatever it is that's kind of like calling to me. And in terms of, I think the other piece in terms of expressing myself, particularly through writing, um, there wasn't really much space for me to kind of like speak or be heard or voice myself in my home growing up. My parents also weren't the kind of parents to be like, so how are things for you? What's going on for you at the moment? Like what's happening in your world? I was very much just kind of left to my own devices. And so when I discovered writing and I discovered my writing voice, I had this way to express myself and most importantly, to actually be heard. Mm. I hadn't really had an outlet for before. So writing actually is a way for me to just be heard, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I have a strong need, desire to be heard as Mm -hmm. we all do actually. And I think that's partly behind it as well, but it is frightening. And the other thing I will say is it's like, you know, as a, as somebody, a Gen Xer who kind of like came up being, having this space and this career in magazines, I remember when all kind of like content, editorial content started to go online and all of a sudden there was a comment section (laughs) and the common wisdom among writers was like, just don't read the comments because there are some really mean people out there. Like no matter what you say, someone's going to want to just for their own entertainment, like tell you you're a piece of shit and you know what you're talking about. And I feel like that has exacerbated hugely with the advent of social media. Right. And so I'm so much more aware and in some ways it's quite stifling and it definitely makes the stakes feel a lot higher in terms of speaking something or writing about something that's in any way remotely kind of taboo or interesting. (laughs) Um, It's very hard to just write freely and not censor myself constantly because I'm uber concerned about like how people might take what I'm saying, you know, it's a real challenge. And I see you rolling your eyes. I think many of us who kind of like have any sort of space or creative urges in this realm will have felt that. And it's not that, um, I mean, this is, this is, this is the way the world is. And in many ways it's, it's good that, you know, Mm. we have more connection with the way that our words are being received. But I think that um, a lot of the time, the people who are taking up those online spaces are not very generous are not there to be generous or to engage Mm -hmm. in a kind of discussion you know, right. so it's just, yeah, it's added some heist. It's added some stakes. So I have this kind of like just natural urge to kind of like, hey, I found this cool thing. Here it is. Or, hey, I think this might be interesting. Here it is. What do you think? It's a very mm-hmm. childlike kind of urge in a way. Yeah. And yet now that feels like it has this added risk, personal risk factor. So there's a more fear around it than there used to be. Yeah. Hello. Okay. So I just want to take a quick break from the episode to share about one of my affiliate partners, Chakrabs, the original crystal sex toy company. You may have seen me share about them on Instagram or in the press because I have, because I love them. <laughs> Vanessa Cuccia, who is the founder of the company, and she was also a guest on this podcast in episode six, 
She really pioneered the idea of using crystals for heightened sexual and spiritual intimacy. Each chakra is handcrafted from a 100% natural crystal, and they're completely body safe. And the store carries a wide array of products that infuse your energetic field with the subtle energy that the crystal of your chakra holds. Using a chakra over time can help build sensitivity and reawaken subtle sensations within your body. Yay! I have personally used them and for years, and I love their products. And over the last few years, I've recommended them to many clients and survivors of sexual trauma, not only for exploring their self-pleasure, but for healing, releasing blockages, feelings held in the body, and rebuilding and reawakening their relationship to sexuality and sensuality over time. And also, they are these beautiful objects which you can put like on an altar in some way in your home to really um, embrace them. So use the link in the show notes and the code is Love at checkout to receive a 10% discount in the store. Big love and enjoy. Okay, now back to the episode. And for the record, for everyone listening, I'm not rolling my eyes at Ruby. She knows me well enough. I'm rolling my eyes at that sort of greater kind of cultural obstacle that we have to be sort of have ourselves um, up in arms or kind of defended around um, just because it is an, it is an intense climate that we're in. And, and so as an artist and as a writer to sort of, of course, come from a place of as much integrity as you can with the level of awareness you're in which is also its own thing. Like you're, we're just only as aware as we're aware. Um, to come with as much integrity as possible and to still be artistically free in these times is a very challenging thing to do. Um, I think if you're working in the space of like contemporary dance or poetry or something that is very nonlinear, then you probably get to sort of um, leave some of those internal kind of fears aside in a different way because you're not really working with the content of what's directly related to what's happening in the world. Right, like as somebody who maybe is 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 creating a dance piece, maybe it's it's slightly referential to the times, but there's way less critique available on the sort of um, same level as when you're using words, sentences, and ideas that tap into the unconscious and the wounds of so many very directly. It's way more direct, you know, and so. Um, that as anyone who's out there expressing yourself or attempting to be an artist or a writer in these times, you're dealing with that. And, um, and a lot of people start to write to that public, start to write to the, to the invisible audience who is asking them to consider all of their needs, which is nearly impossible and would sort of create a very kind of chaotic, uh, neutered uh, piece of art, if you will. You know, so it's like, you know, I probably offended someone by saying that, but (laughs) if you've been recently neutered, I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm talking to someone's cat right now. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you're absolutely right. And it's a sort of, it's a really um, intricate balancing act between holding, yeah, what might be holding holding 
holding your integrity and remaining kind of like creatively curious and true to yourself whilst also taking into account the needs, triggers, expectations, wounds of all of your potential readers, it's extremely challenging. It is. And, you know, sometimes I'm like this morning, my um, partner, uh, we like to read poetry and, and, and was reading me Walt Whitman from Leaves of Grass. And I'm like, oh, God, he was just writing, you know, like there's just an old white dude who was just writing freely with no constraints, you know, of course he has his own story. I'm sure he had a lot of problems too. And he had insecurities and whatever it was, mm. but mm. there have been such different eras of writing mm. and creating than the one that we're a part of where in some, in some regard, it's, it's, it's incredible because so many people can have voices like that is incredible. That is amazing. And, um, there's so much more to even, even that statement. So many people can have a place to, to share their voice, but we don't have to go into all of that. But that part of it is, is wonderful. It's expansive. It's like to hear the voices of so many people and for there to be an ability for people to connect with other people like them, not just like some elitist white upper class that would have access to a publisher, like in the thirties or whatever. It's like, it's so good that all these voices can be platformed and create their own platforms. And, and there, there are definitely obstacles that come with the times that we're in. And I, you know, like I said, my, my astrological spiritual beliefs tell me that I chose very much to be this person on this path in this time um, as part of this climate. And I take that challenge on board, like readily and willingly. And it is making my writing so much richer, deeper, Mm. more serious, and hopefully more impactful, you know, because I'm, yeah, this is all, all of this, what we're talking about is feeding into this new level of depth that I'm finding in my writing because mm-hmm. all of this is also informing the level of integrity I bring to, like I spoke earlier about, you know, what's the real nutritional value of yeah. the food, what the, the food, the, the content I'm putting out into the world, right? Yeah. I feel like my my current book feels like, you know, those kind of energy balls that are like the size of a golf ball, but it's got like yeah. just packed with super nutrient, like everything. and it's pretty much all the food you need for the day I kind of feel like every sentence is a bit like that at least I hope yeah and that's all very much informed by everything I have learned about yeah what it means to be a creator in the world today and what the world needs and why you know Mm -hmm. and so yeah it's yeah I'm just I'm really really grateful that I am have an opportunity to write on this subject matter, the new subject matter, because it just feels so, it's so, it's bringing up so much grief for me about the way that families and mothers and children have been just completely, um, yeah, just have received so little support and it's hard for me to put into words kind of how I feel about it, but just the way that families and family systems have been completely decimated over the past 
couple of hundred years of quote unquote civilization. It's just an absolute fucking tragedy. But it's actually only really feeling the grief of that tragedy that I feel inspired to play a role in improving conditions for mothers, families, children, you know, going forwards in a way that I didn't before. I was speaking to, I have a friend who um, talks about the concept of feminist sadness. And I actually think that grief and sadness can be more motivating than anger and rage a lot of the Mm. time, because actually grief and sadness of feeling what has been lost and what has been taken brings up so much more empathy Mm. than anger at status quo, anger at the way things are. I think anger alone can feel like productive. You know, Mm -hmm. anger is such a kind of active emotion. It's like I'm doing something by just getting angry, Mm -hmm. but actually we're not. It's way more sort of aligned with the patriarchy in a way. It's like outward thrust. Yeah, exactly. Whereas grief is like a deep inner sense of loss, feeling that loss, touching that void, which I have done for the first time writing this book. Now I feel, you know, um, impassioned about, yeah, creating some changes in the world or being part of a really positive change, you know, in a way that I couldn't do through getting angry about stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that you had mentioned instead of, you know, using the word patriarchy when we were on that hike that day, you mentioned like dominant culture, um, dominator culture rather. Domination systems. Yeah. Domination systems. Yeah. So it's like anger feels like a real tool of a domination system. Um, it creates separation. It's, it's fiery red hot, perhaps, um, it does have like a thrust to it or like a shatter or a push. Hmm. Whereas grief feels more like a leaning back and down, like a surrender, like a melting apart, a falling apart, you know, a sort of like, it feels like there's much more of an oceanic like depth. It's like going into the the bottom of the dark void and letting Mm -hmm. yourself be taken there. And, and, I can see even from a depth psychology perspective of like falling down into the dark unknown, like that's our culture's terrified of that. So mm-hmm. of course, from a culture that is, is, has that kind of domination system, like to let yourself kind of fall into this beautiful, painful, melted, sad, like, oh, like, that goes against everything we've been taught. Absolutely. So the domination systems comes from um, an author and a social scientist called Rianne Eisler. She's now in her 80s. She was most famous for a book called The Chalice and the Blade, which I haven't read yet, but she writes a lot about gender equality, but she writes about it from a real kind of social systems perspective. Mm. And the book that I discovered her work through Um, and I will go back and read her other work is called nurturing our humanity where she kind of explains how we live in the West and many other parts of the world under these domination systems, which are predicated on the idea that some people have more power over other people. And that's just kind of like how the world is. And she talks about how we often learn this in our families, particularly when we have very kind of like authoritarian parent figures, often maybe a father figure, who kind of like lays down the law and like, this is the way that life is. And we Mm -hmm. kind of are conditioned 
in terms of even our brain chemistry from birth to just accept that this is the way the world is. Some people have power over others, right? And she talks about the need for a shift to what she calls partnership systems. Mm-hmm. She actually invented the term caring economy, which is being kind of coming out more broadly now, um, many different pockets. But the idea with partnership systems is that we as humans have this natural urge and desire and understanding of how to connect and to partner with each other to meet our mutual needs. And I think that the grief piece, we can meet each other in our grief in a way that we can't in our anger, right? Mm. You know, when we can feel our mutual grief for what has been lost and what has been taken and what we do not have and what we need, then we can help each other to find those things and we can support each other in creating those things and building those things. It's a really beautiful hypothesis. And I highly recommend that book for anyone who's interested in the subject matter, nurturing our humanity. I actually interviewed Rihanna, created a podcast series of kind of my research interviews for this book. So it's just wonderful to hear this 80 year old crone, you know, Mm. talking about, um, yeah, her experience, her life's experience and how it has brought her to these conclusions about the ways that we can work towards reshaping society so that we're actually in this place of we actually kind of like understand what it means to be truly interdependent you know Mm -hmm. which goes against this individualistic survival of the fittest kind of dog eat dog mentality that is part of domination systems yeah well one place that I've been thinking about this a lot is around money and i think we may have talked about this together privately but i'm curious um kind of if you're open to sharing how you feel about it in terms of you know you and i've both been a part of like a wellness culture a modern spirituality culture um we've created retreats and projects together within that kind of culture we've written for publications about it obviously we both have a similar Am I allowed to say the publisher? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) My book came out with Sounds True. That is like one of the leading publishers, I think, in the space of personal transformation, spirituality. Um, and, And Ruby's book is coming out with Sounds True as well. And so anyway, we are two people that have been invested in the space of wellness, spirituality, healing, et cetera. What I'm curious is like what you're seeing in that space or how you feel about what you're seeing in that space in terms to people's approach with wealth and money, especially in the context of discussing a domination versus partnership um, system. I mean, this is a huge, huge topic. I know, topic. I know. I just opened a little can. Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, I think that um, there's a lot of kind of an awakening awareness around the nature of the extractive nature of capitalism. Right. And so now everyone is kind of like, ew, down with hashtag capitalism. (laughs) And yet at the same time, we need to have our material needs met, right? We need to eat, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need to be able to get places, like we need money to survive. And I think this is, I mean, this is kind of, you know, at the heart of, the kind of modern spiritual path, the idea about like, is it okay to, well, material girl, mystical world, right? My first book, is it okay to want money and things and, and be, can you still be a spiritual good person if you want those things? Um, And I don't know, I guess I'm just becoming much more astute at noticing where, 
practices, particularly in marketing practices, marketing messages feel extractive Mm. and where they feel like they're actually truly offering something of value, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think for myself, I've just been doing a lot of thinking around like what's enough, you know? And I really, I've been just recently like, really, can we just stop idolizing billionaires? Like, does anyone need to be a billionaire? Like, is it a good, or any billionaire, like, is it possible yeah. <laughs> for anyone to be like a kind of like good billionaire? I don't know. I just, I have a lot of questions around kind of our, our collective kind of goals in terms of lifestyle, like, and in terms of what we believe is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really making much sense here. I don't really have kind of answers about it, but I just... I'm really, I've been reading some other really interesting um, kind of more uh, academic writing, I suppose, by a British cultural studies um, lecturer called Angela McRobbie. And she talks about resilient, what she calls resilience training. And this is the idea that like, if I can just become strong enough and sharp enough and calm enough and well enough then I can kind of like succeed in this highly competitive, like highly intense domination paradigm, right? And so I'm actually being able, I'm actually coming to see how so much of the messaging in the wellness industry could fall under what she describes as this resilience training. If I can just kind of like, if I can just eat enough collagen or get the right vitamins or like see the right naturopath or just kind of like tweak my, tweak my well-being so that I'm kind of operating at like my maximum capacity all the time, then I can be a success. Yeah. Whereas through my new kind of like awakened eyes, I'm like, well, what about if we actually looked at the reason we're so stressed or the reason it's so hard to kind of feel like you've got a financial safety net, the reason it's so hard for anyone to get on the housing ladder, like the reason it's so difficult that we feel like we have to be operating at maximum capacity all the time just to get by You know, it's like, let's actually look at the systems that are creating these very difficult, challenging, competitive, high stakes conditions in terms of living, not even like a successful or a billionaire life, even in just terms of living a comfortable life where you can afford to take time off, where you can afford to get a massage or like you can afford to eat nice food. Like these are quite actually basic comforts in a way, you know, that I think many of us aspire to, but they're part of like a very aspirational luxury lifestyle now. It's like, that's just, it shouldn't, that, that's sort of, that's wrong. We should all as human beings, we have a right to live a life of ease and comfort where we have enough time to just kind of like be with each other and be with our families and not feel like we need to have a million side hustles to kind of meet our lifestyle goals. You know, it just, I don't know. It's, it's all swirling for me at the moment, but um, yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, it's like, there's so many different levels of the conversation and, and I'm appreciate just kind of getting a little bit of your heart sense on it. Cause there are so many levels, right? Like there's who's listening to this podcast. There's the kind of audience and the, the people that are in our immediate sort of socioeconomic kind of um, class that would, would be having this conversation. And then there's, all the way widespread to people that don't have basic needs met, you know? Yeah. And and so it, it is, and I think it has been strange to consider for that we've lived on a planet for so long that has allowed for 
children to die of starvation, you know, of one, one kind of basic extreme here. Um, like, but then billionaires are billionaires, you know, it's like even just that sort of conceptualization and knowing that that, and I say from like my own sort of spiritual belief perspective that like th that that's part of the complexity of this planet. It's mm -hmm. not something to to necessarily accept or just to like be okay about at all. And as we can see through history, recorded history, that it's not new to have that sort of, um, you know, harsh contrast mm. um, as like a billionaire, uh, uh, you know, spending money on so many things and then someone else many many other people not being able to just have the basics met and so you know i feel like um when i t hear about that sort of switch from the dominator culture the domination based system to a partnership system from a from a, a different perspective i'm like okay there is a there is a and I'm not trying to genderize it. I'm talking about archetypally, like there's a feminine nurturing, um, mothering of community, supporting of community, sharing of resources that feels like it's just so left out. Like it doesn't fit within the domination system. So, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to be an archetypally, um, feminine thing, but through some of the writers that I love in the depth psychology field, like, Jung, Marianne Woodman, Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, it would be sort of looked at as some archetypal feminine qualities to create a circular partnership-based space where the community and the children are um, cared for, where um, if there's if your neighbor is, is struggling, then you would support them, um, you would lend them money, you would invite them to dinner, etc. And that 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 way is so expired in the modern Western society. At least I think we can speak for very generalized in the United States, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it, and I feel like as we sort of, as we, we humans, we collective, we, whoever we are today, um, again, generalizing, but as we come into more consciousness or awareness, um, abundance that the, the, the conversation around how the wealth is shared, how the abundance is shared, how we can sit, we can, we can continue to um, create the partnership systems versus the domination systems is so important. And mm. It feels like, you know, just kind of barely skimming the surface of something so huge, but so essential, I think, Absolutely. as we, we reprogram our own minds and around Rianne, this. And Rianne does an amazing job in her book, Nurturing Our Humanity, around showing how our um, more competitive traits and values have been exacerbated and kind of played up under the domination systems that kind of were put in place around the time that agriculture started to come into being and land ownership became a thing and, you know, natural resources started to be kind of packaged up and sold to the highest bidder. Like, but she, but there's a lot of kind of, you know, this evolutionary theory would say that survival of the fittest plays into that as well. Like right. survival of the fittest says that the strongest of the species will survive and thrive. Right but it ignores the fact that we have equally intrinsic kind of capacities for empathy, for sharing, for interdependence and for um, collaboration. Yeah. And 
actually those qualities and traits can equally be in service of our survival as a species. And I think you just have to look at something like I think this is the how the unhoused situation having kind of really ballooned against the backdrop of the pandemic and people are so much more aware now of like how many people are experiencing homelessness in our, in this supposedly kind of wealthy western developed nation is just such a stark example of how our system is really failing many 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 people you know it's not in this far away country anymore where like children are starving in Africa. It's like, no, children are starving in the United States. I remember reading a statistic where something like 5% of the wealth controlled by the 40 richest Americans, 4-0, of their wealth could lift 38 million families out of poverty. And it's like, why is that not happening? Like, that just seems like right. it would be such a quick and easy, not fix, but like, why isn't that happening? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think more and more people are kind of actually realizing we can ask that question and we don't just have to accept the status quo but coming back to you know there's a lot of conversations in the kind of wellness and spiritual community around like the change be the change that you want to see and I do think that means like look at your values like where are you spending your money and why and what do you aspire to do you really aspire to earning seven figures why you know (laughs) and actually looking at that stuff I think is really important Right, right. I am seeing less kind of coaches out there promising like seven figure salaries if you take my online course, which I think is a step in the right direction. Oh, you are? That's funny because I've seen maybe that. I'm just maybe I'm just like offline. I think you're less online, Ruby. Because I think <laughs> maybe I'm just less online. I think it's hashtag I've tuned trending. That out. I'm like, yeah. oh no. Yeah, you're no. and that's cool you've tuned it out because I would like to not have any of that enter my space at all because I have no interest in being anywhere kind of close to that because I, I personally feel the 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 deep toxicity in sort of um the space of using money as a way to lure people in without honoring Mm. what happens when we get the money like Mm. (laughs) like now what do we create a program for our community do we pay it forward do we do micro invest it's not micro investment what's it called um it's not micro investment when you invest in like um, someone's going to tell me this, you got to comment or <laughs> tell me it's like micro investing. We invest in, in, in small, um, companies and, and support micro investing. Maybe it is. About um, right. I've done it before, or, or even just finding the places that you want to con- consistently contribute financially to. And I think that like, when I came to a certain place of like paying off my debt and, and then actually not being broke, um, at first it was really exciting and like, Oh my God, I'm going to buy new shoes. I'm not, this is my first time not being broke. Oh my God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then it was kind of like settled down a little bit. And it's like, okay, girl, you don't need any more shoes. You don't need any more vacations. You don't need any more personal retreats to fix your broken heart. Um, so like maybe you can share this money that you're making with, with strangers, mm-hmm. like with organizations and, of people that you find are less privileged than you, maybe less marketable than you, maybe have mm-hmm. had less white privilege than you, et cetera. And that has been such a, a liberating choice to continue to call, you know, mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. into personally, which I, um, but I don't hear people talking about it very often, like no, what they're actually all. doing with the money. I mean, my favorite news story from last year, because, hey, there were so many great news stories to choose from, was <laughs> um, Mackenzie Scott, who's Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, just giving away billions of dollars. She she kind of hired, she assembled this kind of like task force to research for her kind of 
a bunch of organizations. I don't know how many. And then they, they just emailed them and like, here's 50, 000, here's $50 million. Here's $10 million. Just kind of out of the blue. She did that? She did that. Oh my God. Jeff's ex. And, and, it, and it did feel like from her, it was a big kind of like, fuck you, Jeff. This is how we do it. Do you know what <gasps> I mean? Oh my God. I didn't read that story. So she's my new, she's my new kind of like hero. No, I don't know. Hero is the right word, but she's, um, yeah, I just think it was a really, it was a really, yeah. Was yeah. Really I think that that's. But at the same time, the real root is like. Right. The system. Why do we have billionaires in the first place? Right, right. Right. Why do we have people that we need to save? People should be like, I would love to see a world and a shift towards a society where everybody can amply support themselves and their families and have their needs, needs met through their own efforts, you know, yeah. and be supported in those efforts in ways that people just currently are not. Yeah. I, yeah, I would prefer that as well versus, you know, Jeff Bezos' wife, ex-wife yeah. saving the day. But I also exactly. appreciate she's like, well, now I've got all this money. What am I going to do with it? Exactly. I'm going to give it away. I actually know someone else like that, another woman, and I'm not trying to be sexist here, but another woman who is a part of a has a family member who's a who's a billionaire mm. and who has devoted her life to giving that money away and 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 supporting many different um, invest uh, investments and organizations and is a big supporter in some really powerful, um, change-making organizations. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting if we were to do a little study, like how many, yeah, just like, why aren't those men giving away their, I'm always trying to be angry at some men. Sorry. I grew up in the nineties and the eighties and like, I just have a still, you know, smallest of little ruffle potato chip on my shoulder, but, um. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it would be interesting. Like yeah, is I don't Elon know. Musk, does he have like a philan? He must have. A- I don't know. I don't know must enough about the philanthropic scene to kind of like truly make a comment on this. But I think and the that- philanthropic scene, I'm sure has its own shadows and all of oh, its own. Absolutely. Illusion. I think so, so much, much of the giving is coming from an egoic place of wanting to look like a good person or wanting to be the savior, you know, and that's, yeah. that's keep, that's maintaining the status quo too. It I think is. it was actually, do you remember with Moon Club, we did an interview with Eddie Stern Yes, and he was talking about this idea of kind of like giving back is actually still perpetuating the idea that like some people have more than other people. Right. You know, and it was more like he was talking then about partnering, like actually partnering, finding ways to partner with other communities and other individuals and kind of share right. the share the resources the share the resources even beyond wealth but share the resources of access and privilege right. and you know share the resources of education and connection even exactly networking and that time is, and yeah. and ingenuity and like all of these things my brother my brother you know has a has a genius idea i love this idea he's like we should have basically a two tier currency where everybody just gets this one currency, one, like the basic currency, everyone gets it as like just a basic income. You don't have to work for it. You just get it. And you can only spend it on housing and clothing and food and like the basics for a comfortable life. And then if you want the two tier currency, which is like the luxury currency, then you go and work, right? I love <laughs> and the this. luxury currency can be spent on like, you know, first class flights and fancy clothes and like, fancy dinners and all the things the all the extra stuff yeah I'm like, yeah i guess i love cool. that it's like sort of like <laughs> a you know socialist meets capitalist kind of a kind an of. agenda it's like you yeah know? have your cake yeah. and eat it i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> 
Well, I know we could keep talking forever. And mm. um, I just, I am so grateful just to have this time. And I know we, for everyone listening, Ruby and I have been friends for a long time and we've done many different projects together. And all of that you can, I'm sure, find somewhere on the internet. <laughs> but for now, what like are those this, past selves, all yeah. the past selves, you can go find on our Instagram or something. But for now, this is what who we are now, and this is what's current now in our hearts. These are parts of the conversations that we're having in our own private time together. It's just like, who are we? Are we in integrity with you know? Are we living the lives that we're really feeling drawn to? Are we moving towards expansion in our beings? Like, you know, have we actually had the courage to shed the old selves and to let them be a part of our you know strange, artistic, beautiful legacy, but also move forward? You know, so we're glad to invite you in, or I'm glad to invite you into this um, incredible friendship and collaborationship. And if you haven't heard. Ruby and I did two podcasts on her podcast on the now age and sober curious, and they're really good podcasts. They're really good conversations. One's about collaborating and creativity and one's about like, I think sobriety and self healing. Mm -hmm. Those are really great. Follow Ruby on Instagram. She's very, very real. And her latest iteration of self, not that you weren't real before, but I think as we get older, right? Like we sort of slough off some of the, like trying to be liked, I'm still working on it because I, I, I think it's a, um, my, my friend posted something about Pluto transits, Pluto, uh, just a little bit of astrology, teeny bit to finish up. So for yeah, of course. Pluto <laughs> is the planet of like death and rebirth and transformation. Yeah. And I have it on my midheaven. Like it's, a, it's the driving force of my career and my kind mm. of expression in the world really. And my kind of legacy is this Plutonian kind of like quest for constant death and rebirth and transformation. Mm. And um, yeah, everybody around the age of like 38, 40, you have your Pluto square, your first Mm. Pluto square. And this is a real maturation point when you really do enter into a kind of like a churn of kind of a deep transformation of like who I believe I am. And, and, and so, yeah, I think, yeah, once we start hitting on Pluto transits is when it all starts kicking in. Which I love because when I met Ruby, she like religiously straightened her hair and like would, f- I'm saying this with love, but would like freak out. We did this photo shoot. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to embarrass you. We did this photo shoot for a jewelry company, um, Alex and Ani, great company. And we were both like so humid and our hair was crazy and Ruby's hair was crazy. And we were both kind of like having a bit of a panic moment. Um, and it's so funny because now Ruby only wears her hair curly, natural, and like takes photos of herself with no makeup and natural hair. And, you know, you guys might think, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. But you try doing it. It's very vulnerable. And it goes against our whole lifetime's worth of conditioning, of watching TV and picking up fashion magazines are literally, you're literally like doing the thing that everyone told you not to do. And that's like completely unlovable and not cute, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been so liberating to watch you just give so many less fucks. Um, and I think that that's coming around the corner for me as 40 is not too far away from me. Like I'm trying to wriggle out of my, um, you know, been trying to wriggle out of my, I care, I care about being 
hot and sexy and cute and likable or whatever the fuck. I've been trying to wriggle out of that for a while and I can feel on the horizon. I see my Pluto square on the horizon. Just- I'm going to look it up in your chart. I can let you know when it's going to kick in. But yeah, I mean, I really do feel with the hair thing, I'm kind of growing out the, the bleach, the blonde at the moment as well. Like it really does feel like, oh my fucking God, my true self is coming out. Yeah. I mean, I don't, hate on your former self or my former self Mm. for like Mm -mm. you know wanting to be skinny pretty glossy all of that and I see women in their 20s you know who I know and I really like and they're really lovely humans kind of in that phase and I'm like I'm not gonna hate on that like I was there then you know it was a coping mechanism so well coping mechanism sounds kind of really intense but in many ways I see it that way it was like drinking for me it was a way and we've spoken about this so many times I'm sure we touched on it in both our other podcast interviews but this idea of like I'm gonna fit myself into this mold because this is how I'll be loved and this is how I'll be accepted this mm-hmm. is how I will belong. Ultimately, it comes down to belonging. Do I belong or am I going to be Exactly. Out? This is what I have. And for so many women in particular, but I know that men feel this too. Yeah. This is the this is the the image I must project in order to belong. Yeah. You know? I wrote this poem while I was just away that was like something like um about being pretending that I was a size small my whole life, but like really being like, I'm coming out as a medium, which is so disgusting. I know for so many people, you're like, fuck you, Alexandra, Um, fuck your size medium. But I, when I was living in LA, I feel like I was hanging out with only, and this is my own choice. So again, judge me if you want. I was hanging out with only women who were like extra small. And I felt like some part of me was always metaphorically trying to be a small, metaphorically and literally, but like trying to be a small. And then I think when I got pregnant and and just went through kind of gaining weight, like feeling completely out of control with my body, and then having the miscarriage, I was like, fuck my size. I've never been a size small. I'm like trying to fit myself into a, like always fitting into pants that are like a little tight and always asking you to eat less. It's like, fuck yeah. that. I'm I'm a happy medium person. And if you're a happy large or extra large or whatever you are, or extra, extra small, like that's totally fine. I don't yeah. have any judgment against you and your journey. I'm just talking about my own and like how um yeah how sad that how how sad it is to spend so many years trying to be something you're not whether it's your appearance your your ass size your you know whatever it is it's all mm-hmm. the same kind of thing i want to belong mm-hmm. i want to belong yeah I, yes. want my, I want to be accepted here and then i just left la because i thought i'll never belong here by us no, <laughs> no no there's plenty of cool people in la a shout out to all you la people <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so much truth to all of that and so much symbolism in the, I'm a small, I want to be small. I want to be small. Do I want to be small? Yeah, am I a small woman? Do I want to be a small woman? You know, again, nothing wrong with that, but exactly. metaphorically speaking. Anyway, we could talk forever and I love you so much. I love you too. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody go follow Ruby, buy her, um, her former books and watch her beautiful evolution of self, you know, follow her on Instagram. She also has numinous books. She publishes books for other writers, supports other writers to live their dream of writing a book and not having to go through, you know, a, a publisher, which is a great option for a lot of people. So if that's something that you feel your heart's calling towards, um, 
then then just be on the lookout for what she's got coming next or inquire on the numinous books page and um yeah and we've got some stuff in the cooker for 2022 so stay tuned for that and subscribe to her podcast sober curious and the now age you have all this stuff so much stuff so so much good stuff thanks ruby (laughs) thanks alexandra (laughs) all right everybody lots and lots of love thank you so much for listening to today's podcast for more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events, and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review, give us a five-star rating, all that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.